Hello, listeners. Gee, welcome. It's uh, been a while since I've been in the studio. Here to chat about food. It's now midwinter, so I've been sitting here in this chair freezing my ass off. Uh, so hopefully we're going to talk about food and just get warmed up by the ideas of what's exciting and happening in the food world at the moment. And uh, the first uh, thing I'm going to discuss is, having just come back recently from an overseas trip, is uh, the importance of uh, the Michelin Guide and uh, how proud we should be about our South African member of the Michelin tribe, Jan Hendrik van der Westhuizen, who is uh, running the wonderful Jan restaurant in Nice in France, who just retained again his Michelin star. He's absolutely fantastic chef, unbelievable restaurateur. A visit to his restaurant is a complete must if you're in Nice. It's uh, compared to everything else in Nice and compared to what you're going to get on the table. Absolutely fantastic value for money and uh, really is a complete experience. And uh, I think one should be so proud of the fact that not only uh, does Jan uh, win these Michelin star every year, but his staff are all South African. And uh, he, he employs uh, many young South Africans to help him in that kitchen. And, uh, of course, uh, the importance for us as uh, listeners of uh, Gay Say Radio is that uh, he's also a prominent and proud member of the gay community. And uh, I think that's something that's very exciting and to be celebrated. And uh, while in Europe, uh, I had the privilege of eating at uh, quite a couple of Michelin star restaurants. And the first one uh, that I want to discuss, which was uh, quite exciting, was... Uh, a little visit I had to the top floor of the Pompidou Centre in Paris. I went up that amazing inside-out building, the building that's famous for being designed inside-out. And on the top floor, they have a exceedingly funky Michelin star restaurant. Every single waiter and waitress, the waiters are dressed in immaculate suits, uh, find these beautiful human beings and just put them into these suits, swishing around with their pocket chiefs and uh, immaculate uh, bodies, immaculate grooming. And the women all look like supermodels dressed in little Chanel outfits with fantastic little Louis Vuitton handbags. It's just a nice place to sit around. Prices, of course, are consummately eye-watering. And we sat down and ordered uh, two small cocktails to start and uh, we received a sort of variation on a Key Royale in a tiny little glass, can't have held more than about 80 or 90 milliliters, which we played the privilege of at 32 euros, uh, so about 500 rand for two tiny little glasses of uh, bubbly with a spot of uh, apricots juice at the bottom. But uh, yeah, this is Paris and yes, we were paying for the view and I'm not just talking about the view of the whole city. It was lovely to have those gorgeous humans buzzing around and um, a very nice uh, shikimiki kind of interior, uh, beautiful um, big concrete and uh, bold facades which are painted in matte colors, uh, lots of use of structural steel, uh, fresh flowers on all the tables and uh, really beautiful. So just certainly more one of the places to be seen. Uh, just go with a full wallet because the food is even more eye-wateringly expensive than the drinks. Pretty good, but uh, in my opinion, not exceptional. I certainly ate better in Paris. But uh, my favorite meal of the French hop of our trip was a meal we had in Champagne 
at uh, the home of Monsieur Bilka, so the owner of Champagne Bilkart Salmon. I was very, very fortunate to win a trip to visit him in at his home in uh, Champagne and to be shown around the Champagne house, uh, still completely family-owned, in that respect pretty unique because uh, all the Champagne houses these days owned by big insurance companies, um, lots of big Chinese companies. So although the staff and personnel might be French, the ownership has certainly uh, left Champagne. But uh, the Billcott family are now in the seventh generation running the house. And um, the house itself was established in uh, the mid-1850s, but has existed long before that, uh, but as a formal enterprise since the 1850s. And uh, we were very fortunate to be shown through the beautiful carve or the wonderful tunnels that run un- underneath the whole of Billcott, many, many kilometers of tunnels filled with millions and millions of bottles of champagne. An interesting thing was I asked him what the oldest bottle of champagne was in the carve, and uh, he said to me that uh, it was a 1945. And the reason being is, of course, during the Second World War, uh, the German commander was stationed in Monsieur Bilkart's chateau and literally all the champagne from all the tunnels downstairs and all the libraries was literally stolen and taken to Germany. So their, uh, their library only starts again in 1945. But they literally have investigators that go out and look at auctions in Germany and try and recover some of the older bottles because apparently they still exist in large numbers in Germany in various spots. So a very interesting story, <laughs> and uh, which reminds me very much of a story told to me a couple of years ago. I had this fascinating, uh, fascinating visit to the restaurant by Monsieur Hugel, who was the owner of uh, Hugel Wines. It's the oldest family-owned wine firm in the world. It dates from 13-something. And uh, he was saying to me that in 1939, they celebrated the 600th anniversary of the Hugel firm. And they'd obviously planned this enormous celebration, this big party, but something unfortunate got in the way. Of course, obviously, 1939, the outbreak of the Second World War. But he says they must be the only family that were quite happy about the outbreak of the Second World War because 1939 was such a terrible vintage that if the Germans hadn't stolen the wine, they fear they would still be trying to flog it now. <laughs> the sense of humor of the, these winemakers is hysterical. Anyway, so the um, we went down into the carve with uh, Monsieur Bilcar and uh, had a look at all the old wines, and we were very fortunate to come upstairs, and we had a meal cooked in his home by a local young Michelin star chef. The guy was under 30 years old. And uh, what a meal, a truly exceptional uh, emphasis on the purity of the ingredients, um, not over fussy presentation, just very elegant, very plain, very simple use of the finest butters, use of the finest fish, use of the finest local ingredients. And uh, it was amazing meal complemented by this absolutely exquisite champagne, uh, some extraordinary old vintages bought up from the library by Monsieur Bicard. Um, so we tasted a... Uh, the 1959, considered to be his greatest vintage ever, the 89, and uh, and uh, what a privilege it was for somebody who truly loves champagne the way I do. And um, 
Anyway, at the end of the meal, the amazing thing was also this uh, this lady who served us throughout the meal. Kind of, they had a lady butler who's worked for the family for 50 years. This exceptionally, perfectly manicured French woman. I mean, I, I don't know how to describe her. She's she's like one of those women that almost looks ageless because you know she's not a young woman, but she doesn't look like an old woman, and she's just perfectly, perfectly groomed and perfectly, perfectly mannered. And the way she served that table was just so exceptionally and unusually fantastic. And uh, I was uh, thinking to myself, wow, I wonder what stories she could have told us about uh, some of the dinner parties that occurred in that house. I'm sure they must have been pretty special indeed. Anyway, with that, let's go to some music with the thoughts of champagne. Talking of Michelin star restaurants, we uh, continued our trip in Rome and uh, then further down in Naples where we had uh, the privilege of eating at uh, a really uh, wonderful restaurant. We are very privileged in that we, uh, my home in, in Naples or near Naples is in a small town called Piera Stornina and immediately around the town, probably within 20 minutes drive of us, we have at least 10 or 15 Michelin star restaurants and uh, we um, had the privilege of eating at Osteria del Gallo e della Volpe. So the, the hosteria, the host- hostelry of the cat and the wolf. And um, one Michelin star establishment, they've held their star for the past 20 years and serving very traditional food of Irpinia. So Irpinia, the region in the foothills of the mountains, the Apennine Mountains, the Irpini, very famous people, uh, reputedly uninvadable, so never, never defeated by the Romans, became uh, certainly, um, they were part of the Roman Empire, but uh, they were never truly defeated by the Romans and uh, were remained undefeated also by Hannibal and uh, even during the Norman era were undefeated, so the, very, the wild mountain people. And uh, being that they're in the foothills of the Apennines, as you can imagine, what does the food consist of? So beautiful wild mushrooms from the mountain, uh, natural foraged uh, leaves and wild spinach and uh, beautiful lettuce and uh, from the mountain. And then the classic meats of the mountain, wild boar. And um, they, of course, have produced the most amazing cheese in that area. So selection of cheeses is an inevitable part of the meal, beautiful fruits and vegetables, and of course the wonderful wine of the area of Avellino. And what a privilege it is to have this food and this wine in these beautiful settings of these restaurants that have existed for uh, sometimes hundreds of years, multiple generations. And in the same street is a very interesting restaurant called Isanti, the Saints, uh, which has been built into a medieval cave. So they've um, the original uh, village of Mercoliano of the area, the people used to live in reconstructed cave or repurposed caves. And uh, what they did was they took one of the original medieval dwellings and converted it into this wonderful, quaint, tiny little restaurant, also uh, with a Michelin star and serving complete handmade pasta. So spaghetti cut on what looks like a guitar, to make, obviously, spaghetti alla guitarra, spaghetti on a guitar. So the dough is flattened out over the cigar, uh, over the uh, guitar strings and pressed down, and the guitar strings function as dough cutters. And they make this beautiful square spaghetti 
with these wonderful sources, classic of the region, wild with the ragu of wild boar, and so on. And that's what's unique about these Michelin star restaurants. And so what gives them a Michelin star? The fact that they make you feel super, super welcome, ultra welcome. So it's not the snootiness that often greets one in South African smart restaurants where you almost feel like they are doing you a favor to let you in. Here, people are so welcoming, so happy to have you at the restaurant and uh, and then to display and demonstrate the products of the area. And uh, they're so proud of the area. They're locavores. They, they're very proud of the fact they've grown up in the area. And I think that's the key. And I think that's a key that's going to distinguish some South African restaurants and already is distinguishing some South African restaurants. We've seen an extreme growth of this down in the Cape, especially in Fransuk at restaurants like Foliage, where the owners specifically go out and forage uh, ingredients uh, in the area around Stellenbosch and, and uh, Fransuk. And uh, here in Pretoria, uh, we've seen that uh, more and more restaurateurs uh, are concentrating on using uh, fruits and vegetables and uh, stuff uh, grown in the local area to the extent that uh, restaurants like Famia, for example, even grow their own uh, fish in tanks right there at the restaurant and grows its own vegetables, which is fantastic. And I think we're going to see a growth of that, especially if you consider what's happening in this planet at the moment and the concerns of global warming and the transportation, long-distance transportation of food and the element of wastage. I think that uh, it's going to become a very important factor in grading a restaurant is uh, what the sustainability factor is and uh, where the stuff comes from. I think uh, let's go to some music while we uh, ponder that point. So how important is it to you? Do you look at labels when you go into your local supermarket and buy food? Uh, have you ever considered the fact of where your meat comes from? Is it feedlot beef or is it beef that's organic beef that's naturally reared? And uh, this is something that's becoming a growing, growing uh, thing in the African market and certainly with restaurants. I mean, uh, most people don't realize that uh, feedlot beef, which is over 90% of the beef sold in South Africa, literally means that thousands and thousands of cattle are herded in an industrialized farming method into gigantic feedlots where they feed on, obviously, feed predominantly made from uh, repurposed mealies. And you and I both know that uh, cows don't eat mealies. Cows eat grass. So how starving does a cow have to be before it forces itself to wolf down its feedlot feed? And in the process, thousands of cows are pressed into each other. Injuries occur on those cows. They break legs. They break arms. And obviously, because they're in such close proximity to each other, sicknesses rapidly spread through the cow population. So they're pumped full of antibiotics even if they're not sick, just to prevent them from getting sick. And of course, you and I are going and imbibing those antibiotics when we eat that meat. And that is the problem with the majority of the beef we get in this country. It's full of steroids because the cows are forced to grow very fast. Our cows are slaughtered at 12 to 18 months, which literally makes them calves. They're not, uh, they're not fully grown cows yet, but because of the amount of steroids and uh, growth-enhancing uh, products they fed, 
They grow far more rapidly than uh, nature would allow. And then they fed, of course, this uh, diet which consists largely of maize, which is not their natural diet, the injuries they sustain. And obviously, because the animals literally are slaughtered in terror, they are full of cortisol. Cortisol, the very uh, dangerous uh, stress hormone which uh, we then directly imbibe. And, uh, you know, they say heavy meat eaters are aggressive. That You know, that's not just a story. That's a fact because they're imbibing so much cortisol and uh, it's so bad for you. Whereas if you uh, can buy yourself a wonderful organic beef, then you can enjoy the fact that uh, your meat is uh, comes from animals that are at least six or eight years old. They haven't been fed full of hormones and growth enhancers. They have no non-essential antibiotics, so it's not to say that they don't necessarily have antibiotics, but only when they're sick, and not uh, just um, for you know the mass use of antibiotics to prevent them from getting sick. And then, in addition, they eat natural grass. You know, they led out to pasture, they eat grass, they eat what they're supposed to do, and then they also grow at the normal rate. And also, the flavour of the meat is so enhanced because the animals are much older. The marbling of the fat through the meat is far more regular. It's far more specialised, and uh, the meat itself has far, far more flavour. So not only is it much healthier for you, but it's far more tasty. And of course, the penalty one pays for buying this meat is price because obviously they can't put the animal onto the market in 18 months. It takes six to eight years. And of course, the the factory farming method and what they feed them is much cheaper. And so generally speaking, organic beef costs at least one and a half times more than the mass market beef, and yet actually is probably less profitable. But uh, South Africans have still not caught on, uh, caught on really to the fact of uh, buying this meat. And uh, for me, it's a source of much sadness that people don't uh, look more carefully at where their meat is coming from. And um, the same goes for vegetables, uh, vegetables raised in a factory environment uh, full of pesticides like Roundup, which is physically, I mean, it's now officially declared worldwide as a carcinogenic agent and still legal to be used in South Africa uh, versus uh, vegetables which uh, come from uh, organic background. And, uh, you know, they're not uh, pre-selected for looking perfect. You know, they're pre-selected for quality of flavor and quality of freshness. And unfortunately, South Africans tend to buy vegetables with their eyes instead of with their senses. And, um, you know, with the rest of their senses, rather. And this is a a problem which Southkins are really going to have to change their eating habits. The beauty of these uh, Michelin star restaurants is uh, they place an emphasis on these ingredients. And I've tried very strongly in my restaurant to place an emphasis on these ingredients. And so, you know, people that moan uh, that our meat is more expensive have to realize that we are paying far, far more for that meat than we would for normal feedlot meat. And, uh, you know, we we actually don't pass on the full extent of that, but we pass on the full extent of the pleasure and the fact that none of our meat requires a basting or anything to make it tasty. It's tasty just by itself. All it requires is a little salt and pepper. So anytime your meat is generally drowned in a sauce or a basting, you can almost be certain that uh, it's because the meat itself is so 
tasteless from uh, its net, its background. You know, it has no fat development, it has no flavor development, and uh, literally it's uh, protein, but unfortunately infested also with uh, high levels of antibiotics, growth hormones, and steroids, and things that you shouldn't be putting into your body. So, yeah, quite depressing that. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's try and cheer ourselves up with some music. So we're talking about the provenance of food in this country and how in Europe it's really become a huge factor in the purchase of food and in your restaurant choices and uh, how in South Africa we really should concentrate on educating each other about the importance of the provenance of our food and also about how we should uh, care about the environment also in the way that the food has to travel because obviously uh, transporting food from vast distances means that you know, it's a very environmentally unfriendly process. Pollution and so on that is incurred is uh, devastating. And a very interesting thing was uh, this, the listeriosis outbreak in South Africa, which was eventually pinned down rather unfairly, I felt, and I'm going to discuss why, on a poloni that was produced at a factory. I can tell you as a food professional that listeriosis is present everywhere. If you have to go to every single supermarket freezer in South Africa, you'd find uh, listeriosis present all over uh, various products, probably not in massively high concentrations and depending on the hygiene products used by the store, but uh, certainly it would be present and uh, has the ability to affect the weak in society like the aged or people with lowered immunity or people uh, like the very young people in our society and the babies. But if one looked at the particular factors behind the listeriosis outbreak in South Africa, it was very interesting that they pinned it down to Polony, yet in a, a unique irony, the listeriosis outbreak seemed to affect people from every single social class, every single racial group, and every single age group. And one, if you thought about it logically, you would say to yourself, well, why would Poloni be placed? I mean, Poloni literally exists as a cheap source of protein. And uh, so it's purchased uh, largely by a really entry-level LSM group. So you'd expect there to be a concentration of listeriosis cases in that group, but it wasn't a fact. The, the fact was it was over all age groups. It was over all LSM groups. So I think in all fairness, one should have looked for another product that came from a single source that is fed to all race, age, and LSM groups in society, and uh, which uh, largely is, comes from a single determinable source. So I know that in, for example, Australia, the cause of the listeriosis outbreak was determined to be a melons that came from a certain uh, grower in Australia, you know, the only product that I could really think of that comes uh, from an almost single supplier in South Africa is tomatoes. And, uh, you know, if you think about it, 90% uh, of the tomatoes in South Africa come from a single um, supplier, uh, a, a massive conglomerate called ZZ2 based up near Zanin. And, of course, every single race, age, and certainly LSM group in society consume tomatoes. It's enormously popular food item. So I'm just raising this as conjecture. I mean, I, I would have thought it would be far more likely that tomatoes, uh, which are a naturally occurring product, which naturally have listeriosis present on their skins um, and uh, might have been due to 
uh, a particular batch of, uh, of tomatoes that had a slightly higher concentration of listeriosis, that it could have been responsible for the outbreak and yet uh, not present in the next batch. So it was almost impossible, really. They were just looking for a scapegoat, and unfortunately the scapegoat happened to be poor old Poloni factory because everyone hates Poloni in any case. So it was easy to sort of pin it on a product that everyone sort of kind of singularly hates in any case and uh, noses made from all the dregs of the meat that are left over. But uh, in all likelihood, it was probably likely to have been something far more simple and far more uniform. So just an interesting point to ponder. In terms of uh, what's going on in the uh, food world at the moment, well, basically restaurants are buckling under the economic strain. So we've seen a massive amount of restaurant closures all over South Africa, which is kind of sad, because, uh, but purely understandable, because people are really battling at the moment. The economy is under the whip, and um, I suppose those luxury items are going to be the first things to go. I was speaking to uh, some folks in the motor industry the other day, and they told me that literally the worst, worst period they've ever experienced in the motor industry with several manufacturers um, that own a big garage change literally selling cars under cost just to keep them moving through the showrooms. And um, we've seen it in the restaurant industry, and the desperation means that several of the restaurants are now offering specials which can only unfortunately damage the restaurant in the long run, but they're just sort of determined to keep their doors open. So South African uh, consumers, there are several amazing deals out there, um, I'm not always going to necessarily trust what's in those, but uh, certainly they're there. However, in general, as a period for the South African restaurant industry, it's going to be a period of extreme shrinkage as we see a lot of restaurants closing. Um, it's uh, We've seen it already. Uh, the RASA figures for last year indicate that uh, more than 30% of the restaurants in South Africa closed last year, and uh, I can well believe those figures. But uh, it's very, very tough out there. We've seen massive increases in uh, input costs. Um, obviously, our labor costs go up regularly year by year. We have uh, the problem of extremely greedy uh, landlords in general uh, with massive rent increases, which especially heavily affect restaurants that have been in the same location for a long time. So instead of like... Uh, allowing for the fact that restaurants are regular rent payers and have been in your centre for a long, long time and supported you. Um, they just put up the rents like always. And so restaurants that uh, have been in a place for a long, long time are suffering from the problem of compound interest as their rents become literally completely unaffordable. And the irony is those spaces are then re-rented to new restaurants without a track history at a far lower rental than what they would have been getting from their established client. And this is something I'm hearing again and again and again. Guys chased out of buildings by greedy landlords because they're not prepared to um, you know, compromise a little on the rent and then only to be replaced by new restaurants with a lack of experience, with a lack of any track record at a far lower rental than they themselves were paying. And that's kind of sad. You know, landlords, if you're listening in, think about these things. These are very important factors. If you've got a guy that's been in your building for 20 years, those are the guys you've got to look after. Those are the guys that have built up a clientele, that build up visitors to your centre, and also guys that have uh, paid 20 years of rent increases. Give them a break. Yeah, think about it. 
Anyway, restaurants uh, going out at the moment, uh, obviously winter, so we've uh, seen a growth of uh, very nice uh, winter menus, winter specials, and uh, especially in towns that are very heavily affected by uh, winter, like Cape Town has some amazing specials going. I think the easiest thing to do is just to look up on your local restaurant website and uh, just pick up what those specials are. I know there's three-course meals going in some of the top, top restaurants in Cape Town for 180, 250 rand, um, in, including some of the really top, top restaurants where you'd normally just pay that for a main course. So winter is your friend in Cape Town. Up here, the weather's been just a lot more pleasant. Um, it's actually lovely to sit outdoors during the day. So uh, I think we're seeing a little bit of a growth in the outdoors restaurant, even now during winter. And uh, also, I think um, I think in Gauteng in general, we're seeing a little bit more of an exploratory kind of feel to restaurants. So moving away from these uh, gauche 1970s and 1980s sort of monsters, you know, the classic uh, shrimp cocktail and uh, biltong soup and so forth of the these very, very dated menus. And we're seeing certainly a lot more experimentation, a lot more fun in restaurant menus and uh, a lot more interesting uh, South American and Oriental twists. And even in uh, you know the more traditional restaurants like the Italian restaurants, we're seeing a far more contemporary twist coming through. And look out for those because that's what makes your restaurant experience interesting. Anyway, let's move to some music just before we close out the show. So just to close out the show, next week uh, we're going to have some uh, interesting restaurant guests on the show. I've decided to ask a couple of prominent gay restaurateurs to come and join me here in the studios and just discuss what it means uh, for them and um, to be restaurateurs and gay in the South African climate and the challenges they face and what makes the experience unique. I'm really looking forward to talking to them. They're very dear friends of mine and they're people that are very serious restaurateurs. Uh, Listeners, it's been a pleasure, like always, being able to chat to you, sort of like a one-on-one chat. I hope, again, I haven't bored you. It's kind of some depressing topics on today's show, but uh, I think things that need to be discussed that are very important and are key to the survival of the restaurant industry in this country. I wish all of you a very special and wonderful day. Thanks for listening.